Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, if you haven't been with us over the past number of weeks, if you're a guest with us today, we're so glad you're here. We're actually right in the middle of somewhat of an intensive study. Uh, we're in the midst, we're in week seven of a 12-week message series in which we're walking verse by verse through a New Testament letter called Galatians. And uh, typically around here at Pathway, we, we usually teach topically, which means that each week or we'll have a series or a single message on a topic and we'll say, what does God say about this? And we'll dig into the Bible, and we'll talk about the application. Um, And then on occasion, we will do what we're doing right now. We'll walk systematically through uh, a book of the Bible and uh, and learn together. Now, over the years, I've preached through a bunch of New Testament books, and all of them have been super helpful. I've kind of avoided Galatians uh, over the years, Uh, not not because the content isn't good. The content is amazing, as some of you are discovering as we're walking through this. Uh, Sometimes it can be tricky. And today we're going to be in chapter 4, and this is the end of Paul's theological segment. And then in chapters 5 and 6, it's very practical. He's going to say, well, based on what we believe about Jesus, here's how we behave and live. And so it's going to get real practical in the upcoming weeks. Uh, But today's the end of his theological section, and in order to really understand the ideas that he's teaching, uh, we're going to have to understand all kinds of history, Jewish history, the history of Israel, some Roman history, because he is going to use some, some... metaphors and analogies. And so I I thought today I'd begin by asking a question. And the question is this, how can we understand a God that we cannot see or comprehend? How can we understand a God that we cannot see? Last time I checked, you cannot see God with your natural eyes. And so how can we understand a God that is clearly beyond comprehension? I mean, how can the created thing totally understand the thing that created it? I mean, it's God himself in the scripture says this. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so the question that we're left with is, how then can we know this God? How then can we understand him? And the way it seems to me as I read through this particular book, you know, from from cover to cover, the way that God seems to reveal himself to us is through analogies, through stories, through metaphors. In other words, he would say, God would say to us, look at this thing over here, I'm like that. And, and, and so we can kind of put some handles on what God is like based on these things. In fact, when Jesus was walking the earth, how did he teach? Anybody know? Parables, which are stories. And he said, you know, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like a man who found buried treasure in a field. I think I got a picture of a treasure box here for you. Just, you know, can you imagine you're just randomly in a field and you start digging a hole because you're bored and you find a treasure chest full of gold. And, and Jesus says, like a man who finds treasure in a field and the crowd is just leaning in like, we get that. There's something appealing about finding treasure, isn't there? I mean, there's a show on the History Channel. It's called uh, The uh, Curse of Oak Island. And they're on like season eight or something. Like, people just love watching the show. It's like, oh, what are they going to find this week? And everyone's hoping that, you know, these men with, with unlimited resources, it seems, just keep digging through the mud on this island. And everyone's hoping that they're going to find some buried pirate treasure. And there's just, Jesus says, like a guy who finds treasure hidden in a field. 
And everyone leans in and they're like, we get that. And so Jesus says, well, you know what that guy does now that he finds the treasure? He sells everything. Sells his house, sells his car, slash chariot, sells his cat. Like anything, he, anything not nailed down, he sells it and he takes the money and he goes and he buys the field that contains the treasure. And everyone's going, what does he mean? And Jesus is saying, look, when you find something that's worth more than everything else, then everything else goes in pursuit of that treasure, which, by the way, is Jesus. And his disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus. So he's, he's teaching through stories that we can connect with. And today, as we get into our text, Paul is going to use some analogies and metaphors. And he's going to use the metaphor, the analogy of family, something that all of us should know something about. Regardless of your family dynamic, regardless of whether you lived with your birth parents or were adopted or, or whether you were a foster child, I mean, we all understand something about family, siblings, fathers, parents, guardians, and, and Paul is going to use this family analogy to teach us about how we can be made right with God. And really, the essence of this book or this letter that Paul writes to the Galatians is in answer to the question of how can a person be right with God? And there's really only two options that Paul proclaims. He says either you can be right with God through law, right? So you, you, you keep certain laws, you're a good enough person, you do all the things that you're supposed to do, or it's through promise, that God does it for us. And I've been saying it this way each week. Either it's something you do or it's something he does. And Paul's going to argue throughout the letter over and over and over again. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done for you. And he keeps pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to Jesus. It's not keeping of the law. It's because God promised to save you. And it's not what you do. Oh, I'm good enough. I gave enough. I'm this and that. No, no. Because of what Christ has done for you. He's going to keep pointing there, pointing there, pointing there. So today, as we talk about family, in order for us to understand uh, what Paul is going to say, we need to understand Roman family, okay? Because this is 2,000 years ago that this text was written, and the people that were listening to him would have understood some things because they were part of the Roman Empire. And the way they did family and the way we do family is not the same. So if it's okay with you, I want to spend a bit of time outlining some of the differences so that when we read the text, you're going to, hopefully, it's going to pop, and you're going to understand what he's trying to communicate. First thing you need to know about the Roman family, they've got four things. It was a patriarchal society. What that means is men had all the power, roughly speaking. The father was the head of the home, both legally, could vote, the women, not so much. The father kind of, in some legal respects, owned his wife and owned his kids and had full control over his family. I'm not suggesting that's the way it ought to be. I'm suggesting that's the way it was at the time that Paul wrote it. And this is significant for us to understand because that's not the way it is today. And it's also significant because in the text, he's going to talk about a father and a son and the father giving his inheritance to his son. And so the family name was passed down to the son and the wealth and the power and the position was passed to the son. And if you're listening with, uh, you know, year 2019 mind, you're going to be going, what about the daughters? And if Paul had said that the inheritance went to the daughters, all his readers would have been like, what's he talking about? The daughters don't get the inheritance, it goes to the sons. And so we sang earlier, we're the sons and daughters of God, okay? That, that, that idea is absolutely true, all right? That's from scripture, but the inheritance went to the sons. And last week, we, we saw in Galatians uh, chapter 3 at the end that Paul says, in Jesus, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no male or female. 
We are all sons, which means we all, in Christ, inherit God's blessing. So I just want you to understand, patriarchy, that's the way it was, and so he's going to speak in those terms. Second thing you need to understand is something called economic slavery. All right, the, the text is going to reference slaves in some respect, and we often think about slavery in our Western context. So in the past 500 years, there have been atrocities, right? And slavery in the West in the last, you know, four or 500 years was based upon race, which is very different in some respects to the kind of slavery that existed in first century Rome, all right? In first century Rome, there were many slaves. In fact, at the height of the Roman Empire, there were three slaves for every one Roman citizen. That's a lot of slavery, but it was economic slavery. I'm not suggesting that they didn't mistreat their slaves or that there weren't atrocities, but it was a different sort of slavery. Uh, The way you became a slave in the ancient world at this time was you lost in war. (laughs) Like if your nation went to war with Rome and they won, then some of the young men would be carried off to be soldiers. Others would go work in mines. And if you were fortunate to be left behind in your home country, you would then farm or sell your goods and pay high taxes to Rome. So you're still a slave of sorts. And and so this idea of economic slavery was that you, you were then the property or under the authority of Rome and you lived in this way. Some of the slaves were carried away to be household servants and slaves for Roman families. Um, it, you, another way you could become a slave was to be indebted. So, you know, if, if you've got a, a farm, and you owed a bunch of money, and your crops kept dying, and you couldn't make your payments on the farm, then the person who you had sold you the land would take you, and you would become their slave. The reason why this is important is because at this time in the world, uh, slavery, as far as we know, was not based on race. Most of the slaves in Rome were white Europeans, and they were enslaved for economic reasons. Some of these slaves were more educated than their Roman masters. They were Greek slaves that were philosophers. They were physicians. They were teachers. They were, they were incredibly smart slaves, and these slaves were often brought into the family and put in charge of the family. There's an example of this in the Old Testament. If you've read the story of Joseph, his brothers sell him into slavery. Like, they want to get rid of him, so they sell him to slave traders. And then he gets sold to a man by the name of Potiphar in Egypt. And he is so wise, and he works so hard, and he's so educated that he rises through the ranks of the slaves and ends up being put in charge of the whole house. Like, hey, take care of the bills, take care of my money, take care of my kids, you're in charge. This was not uncommon in the ancient world. That's important to understand because of the third thing I wanted to share with you. Guardianship of children. Romans, who were very wealthy, would often put their own sons, the the ones that would inherit their family name, inherit their power, inherit their fortune, they would put their sons under the authority and tutelage of a slave. Seems remarkable, but it made a lot of sense if you had somebody who was well-educated and responsible. And that slave would manage the child, tell the child what to do, take the child to school, make sure the child followed his father's laws, and would literally govern the child all the way up until... There was a certain time, and there was a coming-of-age ceremony in Roman tradition, and the father would set the date. It would be somewhere between the age of like 12 and 16, and and there would be this ceremony where where they would take the child, and up until this point, the child was living like a slave in his own home, but the father would do a presentation. They would take off his boyhood clothes, and I think got an image of the ceremony here. This is kind of what it would look like, and they would take this young boy, and the father would wrap around him a toga. And you've seen that. It's like a big cloth, flowy cloth. 
And this was the, this was the clothing of an adult male Roman full-fledged citizen. And he would wrap a toga, just like his own, on his son. And then they would go and register the son as a Roman citizen. This transaction meant the son was no longer under the slaves and servants and laws of the house and now was an heir and a son legally within the Roman Empire. It's a pretty big deal. The kid goes in, they do the ceremony, walks out in the toga, and everyone's like, yes, sir. The slave that was telling him what to do yesterday is now working for him. It's a good reason to, for the slave to treat this young child well, because um, he would one day be in authority over him. And so he would wear the toga. This is why, in Paul's letters, he talks about putting on Christ. It's this image of being wrapped in this identity and this authority that is given when we go from becoming from slaves to sonship. Here's the last thing I need to tell you, and then we'll read the text. Roman adoption. Paul's going to refer to adoption, and the way we think about adoption in our modern day uh, times is we think of adopting children who are very, very young, like babies or very small infants, right? And we adopt a child and raise them as their own. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift. Uh, Roman adoption, not so much. Uh, The way that Roman adoption worked is they actually adopted adult males, Because adoption was about passing on your name, passing on your wealth, and passing on your family line. It wasn't about blood. And so they would often, I think it's brilliant actually, because if if you need an heir to give your name and all of your wealth and your family to, why not wait until they grow up and see how they turn out? Like, that's fascinating to me, right? So it's like, hey, there's a real bright chap. Hey, come here. Like, I want to adopt you. How would you like to have my name? How would you like to have my money when I die? How would you like to rule over my household? Okay, and, they would, and he would adopt an adult male. And that adult male would become the heir to everything they had. Interesting historical fact. How many of you heard of Caesar Augustus? Yeah, like he's the guy that called the census, right? That, that made Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. Well, Caesar Augustus, um, he was actually the nephew of Julius Caesar. And if you know your Roman history, Julius Caesar is about to take supreme power over the Roman Empire, and, and some of the senators at the time assassinate him, and, and when they read his will, his will states that his nephew Octavius would be his adopted son and sole heir of everything he had, which is interesting. So his nephew named Octavius receives everything because of his will, and then eventually becomes the um, emperor of Rome, and he takes the name Jew, or Caesar Augustus. He actually inherits the entire Roman Empire through adoption. So adoption's a big deal. And unless you understand that, then it will be hard to pull these ideas together as Paul reads them. We ready to go? Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I mean that the heir, the one who would receive the inheritance, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Little kid living in his house, he's going to inherit everything one day, but he's living like a slave in his own house. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Everyone listening goes, we get that. We know exactly how that works in our Roman culture. Then in verse 3 is where he's going to turn this around and make it apply to us. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children... We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, he's saying that all of us, humankind, 
Before Christ came, we were like children who were under these laws. And I think he's talking about the moral law that exists for all humanity. Like everywhere you go, in every culture, there's a law that people live by. And it varies from east to west and north to south. But in every country, there were moral laws that people lived by. Even the most cannibalistic tribe, they had moral laws. You're allowed to eat people from the other village, but you're not allowed to eat people from your own village. Like, that's a moral law. And those types of laws exist in all cultures. And, and essentially, what he's saying is every culture has had this law they lived by, and all of that was important for our protection and for the protection of others. But then Jesus is going to come and change the course of human history. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come. So now there's this set time. Now Jesus is going to arrive on the scene. Now why was it this time? Why did Jesus come when he came? I've heard some philosophers and some teachers say, well, it's because the Roman Empire provided safe roads, safe passage to Europe and the east, all the way out to Britain. Like there was this massive empire where you could travel safely and it was perfect for the gospel. I don't know. But for whatever reason, God appointed this particular time and brought his son into the world. Here's what it says. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Now this is fascinating to me. God's own son, who is God, comes to earth, and he's born of a woman. So he's fully God, fully human. That has some pretty radical implications, because if he's fully God, it means that he can, he can live without sin, and he can demonstrate what the Father looks like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I'm here, I'm living the perfect life, I'm showing you what God looks like, but I'm also fully human. Jesus wept, Jesus laughed, Jesus ate food, Jesus... Jesus felt rejection and betrayal. He, he lived like you and I did and can understand what we experienced. So he's fully God, fully human. And the purpose of his coming was to, verse 5, to redeem or to buy back those who are under the law. That's all of humanity. Now, when I was a kid, they used to always show this image of like a chasm. Some of you remember this if you grew up in church. It was like man on one side, God on the other, and a big, a big chasm or uh, you show it here, a canyon between. Right? So we're on the one side and God's the other and we can't get over there. And then they would say Jesus would be like the bridge, right? Because he's fully God and fully human, he could bridge the gap. But instead of drawing a bridge, which makes sense to me, they put a cross in there because it's through the cross. But as a kid, I remember always looking, how are they going to get over the top piece? Right? Because they're all stuck, right? A bridge would make more sense, but it's, anyway, welcome to my mind. Um, and so this image of the cross of Jesus is going to mediate between these two sides, and he goes on to say this, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he's like, okay, there's this, God's going to send Jesus at the right time for us to go from being slaves to sons, and he's going to do it through adoption. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're going to be adopted into God's family. And remember, adoption had nothing to do with gender, had nothing to do with race, nothing to do with skin color, ability. It was God choosing and giving us sonship through adoption. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He says, the spirit of God comes as a witness to this transition that happens and comes to live inside of us. And the spirit brings us into a new relationship with God by which we call him Abba, Father. If you're new to church and you're like, Abba, is that a band? Yes. Dancing queen. Actually, I had to look it up online. I'm like, okay. I wonder if Abba named themselves after this scripture. They didn't. No. No, they didn't. The first names of all the singers start with A, B, B, A. So now you know that. 
Um, <laughs> Abba is an Aramaic word that simply means father. Some have translated it daddy, but it's, it's a personal way of addressing a father. And so he's like, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can now call God our father. Now you all think, of course we do. That's, that's what we've always done. The Jewish people in the ancient world did not call God their father. God was holy. They wouldn't even pronounce his name because they didn't want to disrespect him by saying it wrong. Like, it was a big deal. God was so holy, they had to kill an animal to kind of to clean the slate, to even a, attempt to approach him. Like, it was a big deal. And so what's fascinating about this is that when Jesus' disciples ask him, how should we pray? He says, let me tell you how to pray. Pray in this way, and some of you know it. Our Father. That was a big deal. These Jewish men around Jesus are probably going like, can we really say that? Can we do that? And Jesus is like, yeah, you will be able to now because I am changing the relationship that man has with God. And so we can call him father. It's very, it's very personal. See, um, I'm a pastor. And after service, I go in the lobby and I try to be friendly. I'm not very good at it, but I try. I'm like, hi, hi. And I'm shaking hands. I try to be friendly. And, and sometimes it's so cute. Some of the kids in our church, they come up and I'm just Nathan, right? I'm just like me standing in the lobby, but they're like, oh, the pastor, the guy on the stage. And so they kind of come up and they stand at a distance and they kind of lean away and they're like, hi, Pastor Nathan. It's like, hey. But you know, sometimes I'll be standing there talking to somebody and all of a sudden out of nowhere, I'll feel these arms wrap around me from behind. And I'm thinking as I'm talking to somebody, I sure hope that's one of my kids. <laughs> Because, like, if it's a guest, we're in trouble. Like, ushers or something. And, and sure enough, it's, it's, usually, it's usually one of my kids. And, see, they don't, they don't go, oh, Pastor Nathan, and stay at a distance. They go, Dad, and they give me a hug, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a change in the relationship where there is now a boldness to approach, right? Would you agree? That's what, that's what he's talking about. Something has shifted in the relationship where you can now approach. But I want you to notice something in case we, we lose sight of this. Jesus taught us to pray our father, not my father. Think about that. Our father in the plural. And the reason why is because when, when we're adopted into his family, we're adopted into a family. Like if my oldest child came to me and said, dad, you know, uh, I really appreciate what you and mom do for me. We, he'd have our attention. We'd be like, really? Okay, listen. And dad, last week during the sermon, you said that I would get an inheritance one day. And I'm really looking forward to that 150 bucks you promised, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. He's getting a cheer from the back. Um, but, then, but then he said, you know, and I, I love being part of this family. I love being your son, all that stuff. I just have one problem. It's those other kids of yours. You know, they keep leaving my PS4 remotes empty with no battery. And they keep stealing my iPhone charger. And life would be better if you just get rid of them. And of course, my response would be, they annoy me too, but they're our family. We love them, right? Like, when we become children of God through adoption, we join a family. And Jesus is super clear about this. We're going to learn about this in chapters 5 and 6. You can't say you love God and then treat his children poorly. You're part of a family. And that's an interesting dynamic. So we pray our Father. It's not just me and God. It's me and God and his other children. And that changes everything. But we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. So he continues in verse 7. He says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So 
When you trust in Christ, you are adopted into God's family. You are wrapped in his clothing. You now have, you are now the heir of all, like his hope, his forgiveness, his love, his nature, his spirit come to live, and we begin to live out of this new identity. That's what he's talking about. And then in the next 12 verses, Paul is going to go on a personal rant. He's going to talk to them about his relationship with them. We're going to save that for next Sunday. And I want to skip down to the last 10 verses of the chapter because he continues this conversation there in verse 23, 21. He says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now remember, Paul is talking to a group of Christians. Some of them are Jewish and some of them are not. And Jewish leaders have come in saying, yes, Jesus You are a son of God through Jesus, but you also have to get circumcised, and you also have to keep the laws of Moses. You have to become a Jew, so you'll be a rightful heir of Abraham's promises. That's the argument. And Paul is going to be like, hey, guys, I want to remind you that Abraham had two sons, and nobody ever talks about the other son. They only talked about Isaac. He said, let me tell you that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now, if you don't know the story, I'll give you the quick version. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you descendants, as many as the stars of the sky. Abraham's like, awesome. So he spends at least 10 years wandering around in the land, but God doesn't give it to him. He's just, he's just there. He's camping. And he's tenting around this area, waiting for God to give it to him, and his wife and he are getting old, and they still don't have a child, for his wife is barren. So after 10 years, have you ever felt like God promised you something, and then it you're like, what, what happened? What? So 10 years go by, and God still hasn't made good on his promise. So Abraham's wife, Sarah, says, oh, hey, Abraham, I have a plan. I have a slave, an Egyptian slave named Hagar. She's young. She could have a baby for me. Now remember, right, economic slavery, this made sense. This, this woman, she owned this woman, and so if this woman had a child, the child would belong to Sarah. So she's like, you're going to have a child through my servant. And so she gets pregnant, Hagar does, and she has a child named Ishmael. Abraham's like, God kept his word, sweet. A decade later, God shows up and says, hey, Abraham, guess what? I'm going to keep my promise now. Oops. Like, no, no, we we took care of that. He's like, no, no, I promised you a child. I'm going to give you a child, and I'm going to give it to you through your wife, Sarah. Now, she's 90 years old at this point, and he's 100. And Abraham's like, that won't work. (laughs) Like, it literally won't work. And God's like, I'll make it work. And this is the whole point, is that Sarah gets pregnant, has a child. This is a, this is a miracle. And, and so you have the first child that's born, and then Ishmael, and then you have Isaac, and you have these two sons, both of which have claim to the inheritance. Now you have a, a family dynamic, and Paul's going to reference that here. We'll go through it quickly. Verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Now, We think of the word flesh, we think bad stuff, but literally he's saying it was just natural. Like grade eight biology. Abraham and Hagar had a child, like it it just worked. While the son of the free woman was born through promise, like the fact that, that, that Sarah had a baby at 90 was an absolute miracle. She was past the years of birth. And so he's comparing one was natural, what we do, and the other one was what God does. There's the contrast, okay? He says in verse 24, now these may be interpreted allegorically. He's going to pull back and go, here's how we can understand these. These women are two covenants. 
One of them is the covenant with Abraham, the promise that God would do it. And the other is Moses, which was a covenant where God says, you do this. And so one of them is what God does. One of them is what we do. He continues. One is Mount Sinai. That's where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, the Jewish people were like, we're the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's like, actually, if you are still submitting to the laws of Moses, you're actually the son of Hagar. That's, that's like a slap in the face for a good Jewish boy. Like, this is kind of a big deal. He says, one is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. There was this understanding in the ancient Jewish world that everything, there was a duality to everything. So the temple in Jerusalem was like an, a temporary image of the temple that exists in heaven. That Jerusalem, the city of God, was actually a picture of heaven and the city of God, Zion, in heaven. So there was this, so they understood that, and he's saying, look, Jerusalem, the temple, the sacrifices, the law, all these things, they're like temporary, passing away, but then there's the true heaven, the true Messiah, the true church. And he continues, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written. And he quotes Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is a reference to the Gentiles, non-Jews, being included in God's family. Verse 28, and we're almost done. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. God chose you and brought you into his family. It's not about your genealogy. It's about faith in Christ. Verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. In Genesis 21, Ishmael is 12, 13 years old. And Isaac is just a little baby who's being weaned from his mother. They're probably having a party, you know, <laughs> that he's finally being weaned. And the older son, Ishmael, is laughing at him and mocking the younger son. And Sarah, right, this is Abraham's wife, she sees the son of her slave mocking her natural-born son, and she turns to her husband. Like, you don't want to get mama mad. She turns to her husband, and she's like, Hagar and Ishmael need to go. Send them away. Of course, Abraham loves Ishmael and loves Hagar and doesn't want to send his, his son away. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And God speaks to him and says, no, it must be so. Because he wanted to bring the promise through Isaac. So this is what he's talking about. So he's saying just like the, the son born of natural means was persecuting the promise, this is what's happening in the church in Galatia. These people who are trying to bring the free Christians back under rule and law, and it's happening in the same way. He finishes uh, with this in verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And Paul is pointing to the fact that <laughs> We're adopted into God's family through what Jesus has done for us. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about circumcision. It's not about rituals and rites that we perform. It's about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask the band to come because we're going to close our service today by sharing in the Lord's table. And we also call it communion. And this is the, the moment when we remember Christ as he's establishing the new covenant with his church. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And this is the cup of my blood, a new covenant that I'm making with you. And the band is going to come and I ask them to, to lead us in the song, Sons and Daughters, one last time as we take communion.
Because it is through Christ and it's through His sacrifice that we become sons and daughters of God. The other night I was, I was laying in bed, tucking in my son, my younger son, Nathaniel, and he was asking me like a hundred theological questions. I think he just didn't want to go to sleep. And he was just like, but dad, you know, how do, how do you know that you're a child of God? And I began to explain to him how the Spirit of God bears witness. It lets us know. And he's like, yeah, but what if, you know, what if I'm not good enough? What if I don't, you know, and I'm like, dude, you'll never be good enough. That's not the point. I, and I said to him, I said, listen, how did you become a Blay? That's, that's my last name. How did you become a Blay? And he's like, well, I'm like, how hard did you have to work to earn that name? It's like, well, not. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> how much did you pay for that? Nothing. I said, I know. Your mother and I brought you into the world, and we love you because of who you are. And he's like, oh, I get it. And I said, that's the way God loves us. He, he adopts us into his family. And he created us, but he, he chooses us, and he gives himself for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. And, and, I, and I told him, and he said to me, he said, Dad, how do I know? Like, there's, how many religions are there in the world? I said, dude, there's thousands. He's like, Dad, have you studied them all? I said, no, I haven't. But I've studied a lot of the big ones. And I said, here's the one thing that's unique about the Christian faith among all other religions, is every religion says, here's what you do to get to God. Here's how you get right. Do this, 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 this. And he's like, yeah, that makes sense. I said, but only Christianity says that God himself came down and did it for us because we couldn't do it. And he's like, ah. That makes sense. And he adopts us into his family. And, and when we understand that, like that, the gospel clothes us. It's like, we, we, I, I have access to hope. I have new life in Christ. I didn't do anything to deserve. I am forgiven. I'm still a mess. Yes, because you've been clothed. You've be made, been made a son through adoption. It's, look, it's the most amazing thing And when we understand it, it changes everything. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.